It is great to be here tonight and to see each one of you. Always appreciate the opportunity to be here at Little Union Church. So many wonderful memories that I have the Lord has blessed me to store up that have uh, been experienced here at this place with uh, this congregation. And I appreciate the invitation to be with you once again. Uh, I'd like to bring your attention to a verse in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 where Solomon, writer of divine inspiration, said, To trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not thine own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. This is one of three verses in the Bible that tell us something we're to do with all of our heart. There was a lawyer that came to Christ in Matthew chapter 22, asking what was the great law, you know, in the Old Testament. And the Lord replied by saying, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, all thy might, and all thy strength. Now that's, that's a tall order, to say the least. And he says, in the seconds of love thy neighbor as thyself. He took the Ten Commandments and divided them into these two sections. The first four applied to what he said first, the last six to what he said second. But again he says, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. In Acts chapter 8, we find where there was a eunuch who had heard Philip preach the gospel to him, Isaiah chapter 53. And after hearing the gospel preached, we find where he saw some water. He says, What doth hinder me from being baptized? He said, Thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he said, I believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of the living God. So we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, we're to believe with all of our heart, and we're to trust him with all of our heart. Now, that verse, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, is a pretty easy verse to memorize. That's actually one of the first verses I ever memorized. Some verses are more difficult to memorize than others, but might be easier to live by, and some are easy to memorize and hard to live by. Now, this is one of those that's easy to memorize, but much more difficult to live by. To trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. That, that's the exact opposite what he says to begin with. If you're leaning to your own understanding, there's no way you can trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Now, man's inclined to put his trust in many different sources other than that. We look in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, and Jeremiah says, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, that maketh flesh his arm, whose heart is departed from the Lord says, he shall be like a heath in the desert. says, he shall not see when good cometh. He shall inhabit the parched places of the earth and the salt land not inhabited. That, that's a picture of desolation. Uh, a heath was a small, unattractive plant or bush that bore no fruit. It was unattractive. It was fruitless. Basically, it was useless. And somebody puts their trust in man, it's going to be just like that. When the Lord gives us a word picture, an analogy of whatever, while we might come up with one of our own, you will never beat the one the Lord gives us. So here, here's a picture of the life of an individual who puts his trust in man. But then he gives us the contrast. He said, but he that trusteth in the Lord says, uh, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And its roots shall spread out toward the water, 
and shall bring forth fruit, and its leaves shall be very green. Here's a picture of fruitfulness. It's a picture of life. Uh, it's a picture uh, of someone, you know, that uh, is, is living, uh, and they're living for the Lord, and they're very fruitful in their life. So what a tremendous contrast we have here, and he gives us a picture uh, so that we can compare them side by side. Now, over in the uh, 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verse 9, the Lord spake a parable unto those that trusted in themselves and despised others. And he says there was a Pharisee and a publican went up to the temple to pray. Now, if you contrast this with Acts chapter 3, we see a distinct difference. In Acts chapter 3, we find where Peter and John went up together to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer. Now, the Pharisee and the publican did not go up together. Now, Peter and John did. I think they were side by side. I think they had discussed going up to the temple and praying together. While they probably both prayed individually, they prayed together in unison. But the Pharisee and the public went up to the temple. They didn't go up together. They went up there, but they were not together. Now remember the Lord spake this parable to those who trusted in themselves and were righteous within themselves and despised others. So the Pharisee, his prayers recorded first. He says, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like other men, even like this publican here. Now, if you count the words up, you'll find his prayer has 34 words in it. And seven times in the 34 words, the word I is mentioned. So it's, it's all self-centered. It's all about him. Uh, he prayed thus with himself, which means he prayed apart from the assistance of the Holy Spirit of God. And he prayed for himself and for nobody else. That's it. Now, if he thought that publican was in the condition he, he referred to him as, he should have prayed for him. He, but he prayed thus with himself. So I thank you, Lord, I'm not like other men, like, like this publican over here. He says, I, I fast twice in a week. Now, the law only required people to fast one time, but he, he fasted twice. He wanted to know, the Lord to know that he went beyond duty. And he fasted twice in a week and gave tithes of all he possessed, even down to the very smallest things in his possession, he, he tithed those things. He said, I'm not an unjust man, I'm not an adulterer, I'm not a, an adulterer. So he told the Lord what he was not, he told the Lord what he did, as if the Lord needed to be informed and instructed about these matters. But the publican of here prays a seven-word prayer. And he smites himself on the breast and, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And this man went down his house justified rather than the other. And I think that's a practical justification that's under consideration here. So we have a contrast between these two men. And I believe the publican knew where his blessings came from. And he had obtained mercy in the past. And he felt like he needed mercy in the present. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. He confessed he was a sinner. Now, the Pharisee was a sinner as well. Uh, you know, the world's made up of sinners, some who know it and some who don't. Uh, those uh, sinners, uh, you know, are alive uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and some who are not, and they would be insulted if you even call them a sinner. But, you know, there are those who do just what this Pharisee did. He certainly wasn't trusting in the Lord. And we look in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 9, 8 and 9. Paul said, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them, uh, concerning us and the trouble we experienced in Asia. He says, uh, we were pressed out of measure, 
above strength, and the spirit even of life. Now, when you study Paul's writings, you'll find where he mentions some of his troubles and trials and tribulations in numerous dis different places. Paul suffered among his own countrymen. Paul suffered among robbers. He suffered at the sea. He suffered in the city. He suffered in the wilderness. Uh, there was hardly any place Paul went. He didn't wind up suffering in one way or another. He, he was in prison. He suffered numerous perils. There was times he was hungry. There was times when he was thirsty. There were times, um, you know, uh, when he just didn't have anything left to the point where he just didn't think he had, you know, very much time left to live. So he said, despaired even of life. Then the very last thing, which I think has always uh, been uh, intriguing to me, he says, in the care of all the churches. He puts that right in the list of everything that he suffered. You know, the care of all the, he loved the Lord's people. He loved the Lord's churches, and he wanted to see them do well, and he didn't like it when they were not doing well, when they were not of one mind, one accord, et cetera, et cetera. It certainly bothered the Apostle Paul. But he says, but we had the sense of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves. Now, I'm sure we've all trusted in ourselves at <laughs> one time or another. He said, but we had the sense of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. I couldn't give you a, a greater reason tonight to put all your trust and your heart in the Lord than this one. He says, uh, we had the sense of death within ourselves, we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who hath delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, and whom he trust, we trust he will yet deliver. Those are three wonderful deliverances here. He has delivered us from so great a death. I think he did that on, on Calvary, on the cross. And then he doth deliver. We believe in the very providential blessings of God here. And that we God delivers us day after day after day. And then whom we trust, he will yet deliver. And there's going to be a tomorrow, hopefully, for us. Uh, there will come a day when there will not be a tomorrow. But as long as there's a tomorrow, we're going to trust in his delivering hand there. And we're going to trust in his delivering hand, to, you know, when he comes again and takes his bride home to glory. So... Uh, he couldn't give a stronger reason to put your trust in the Lord than what he said right here. Now, the Pharisee trusted within himself. Paul said that they had the sense of death within ourselves. We should not trust in ourselves. So here's some of the places we could put our trust, but we certainly should not. Now, in Psalms 115, and uh, we find where David says, Our Lord is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. But their idols, he said, and he'll speak about idols, they have eyes to see but cannot see, or ears to hear but cannot hear, a mouth to speak but cannot speak, hands to handle but cannot handle, and feet to walk cannot walk. He says, now those who make them are likened to them, and also those who put their trust in them. We're not to put our trust in idols. And the world has always been given to idolatry. Today, we have the idols of recreation. We have the idol of work. We have the idol uh, of entertainment. We have the idols of our own selves. Uh, you can worship yourself. You can even worship the church. You can even worship the ministers. God has given the gifts in the church. You can worship the Bible. The Bible wasn't given to us to worship the Bible, but the God of the Bible. Uh, God has revealed himself in his word. He's the one we're to worship. We're not to worship the Bible itself. You know, uh, the very... Blessings God gives like the moon, the sun, the stars, and everything. What blessings they are to us. And yet they have been the, uh, the object of idolatry as much as anything that God's ever created. Uh, you know, the brazen serpent that God had Moses to, to erect, that uh, when the people looked upon that brazen serpent, 
uh, how they were healed. Well, after that, they began to worship that brazen serpent, made an idol out of it. So people are inclined to do such things as that. Well, we're not to put our trust in idols. So he follows it up by saying, uh, Oh, Israel, put your trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, put your trust in the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. And then he, gets, he apply, uh, makes reference to all of us in this next verse. He said, All that fear the Lord, put your trust in the Lord, for he is their help and their shield. First to Israel, then the house of Aaron. And you say, well, I'm not of Israel, and I'm not of Aaron, but you are among those who fear the Lord, that respect the Lord, and have reverence for the Lord. So put your trust there, because he is our help, and he is our shield. He's our defense, is he not? Now, Psalms 118, verses 8 and 9, David says that we should put our trust, it's better to put your trust in the Lord than in man. It's better to put your trust in the Lord than princes, to those in positions of authority, those in positions of power, etc. Don't put your trust there. Isaiah chapter 30 and 31 says, Woe to those that go down to Egypt for help, who ride upon, stay upon horses and, ride, and put their trust in chariots. That's putting your trust in the military. That's putting your trust in numbers. And I think that's what David was doing when he numbered Israel one time. Uh, he wanted to see just how many he had. You know, that's where he thought maybe his strength came from. He was putting his trust in the wrong place, you see. So we're given numerous places in the Bible uh, in references of where we should not put our trust. But Psalmist says we should put our trust in the Lord. Trust the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct our path. What a positive promise this is to have your path directed, to have your steps directed. You know, Jeremiah 10 and 23 says, and I know it's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Man by nature, he doesn't have enough sense to get out of the rain. A man by nature, he just uh, doesn't know how to direct his steps in a proper and acceptable way in the sight of God. He needs his steps directed. If you want to know how to walk, if you want to know how your steps should be directed, then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 here is the verses we need to go to and practice. Now, we give Bibles at uh, our students, uh, I mean, our, <laughs> our members who graduate, I hope they're students, but anyway, in the house of God, uh, I usually put Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in there. Uh, when we give a graduation gift to anybody or something like that, I'll usually put Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I don't know, if, I think it's probably one of the most, if not the most important verse in a practical sense is found in the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, not some of it, not part of it, but all thine heart, and lean not to your own understanding. We're inclined to do that. We're inclined to make a plan and ask God to bless the plan rather than asking God to give us the plan and then bless the plan. You know, doesn't it make more sense to have God give you the plan to begin with? I'd have more assurance he might bless it if he actually gave it to me in the beginning. But we'd like to make all our plans and say, okay, now, Lord, you know, I need you to bless this plan. <laughs> well, we're getting things in reverse, getting things out of order here. Now, sometimes the Lord tells us to do things that just seem to be out of order or, or strange, but if we're confident the Lord has given us instruction, we should put our trust in him and follow it. God will never lead you where he will not give you the grace to walk in that pathway. God will never give you something to do. that He will not give you the strength, the grace, in order to carry it out. Always remember that. No matter, you don't have to understand it. Just put your trust in it. I think about somebody like Joshua, for example. You know, 
uh, in Joshua chapter 6, the Lord tells Joshua, he says, See, I've given thee the city. Now, they've crossed Jordan's River, but their first big test is a city called Jericho. See, Jericho was a, a fortified city, one of the strongest cities there in the land of Canaan. And this is going to be a major test. They could conquer Jericho. They could conquer any of them. But if you can't get past Jericho, that's just going to be it. So he tells Joshua, he says, See, I have given thee the city and the king and the men of valor. The Lord is guaranteeing victory before the battle is ever fought. Now, I'd like to believe in a God like that. That's why you can read Romans 8, 28 through 30 and rejoice in it. We know all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. But whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And when he predestinated, then he also called. And when he called, then he also justified. And justified, then he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God be in it uh, for us, who can be against us? Now, the last thing he said there is glorified. E.D., you're not glorified yet. I'm not glorified yet. But as far as God's concerned, we're just as glorified. Uh, you know, uh, that, well, we're not as glorified as going to be, but what I'm trying to say is uh, uh, it's just as sure as if we had already been glorified. God is guaranteeing the results before the thing ever takes place. He's guaranteeing victory to Joshua before the battles ever fought. He says, I've given you the city. I've given you the king. I've given you the men of valor. What did Joshua do? Joshua immediately put the plan in place. Immediately. There was no tearing, there was no procrastination, there was no putting it off, there was no thinking about it. So, yeah, I don't know, Lord, about this plan you give us here, because the plan was highly unusual. I've never read another plan like it. He says, I want you to line up the people like this. There's going to be the men of war. There's going to be seven priests bearing seven tr uh, trumpets of ram's horns. There's going to be the Ark of the Covenant and the balance of the people are going to follow them. That's the order. And you'd go around the city of Jericho one time a day for six days, then go around on day number seven, and you go around seven times. you got four sevens in this battle plan. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. It's four of them. Seven priests, seven ram's horns, seven days, seven times on the seventh day. There was no hesitation from Joshua. I think this is an example to me of somebody who's putting his, all his uh, you know, trust in the Lord with all of his heart. If this is what God says do, then that's exactly what we need to do. And the Bible says Joshua rose early on the first day. He rose early and carried out the plan. He arranged everybody in the, in the way they were to go. He set it up. He commanded the people. He rose early the first day. He went around the first day. Now, you know, sometimes when you're trying to do something, you like to see a little bit of evidence it's going to work. But I don't think the walls had even cracked or trembled at this point. It goes around day two, day three, day four, day five, number, day number six. Everything's just like it was. And part of this plan also is that they were not to say a word. Now, that's the toughest part of the whole plan. Of the whole plan was given, this is the most difficult challenge to walk around a city and not say anything to the people that's looking down at you, no doubt's taunting you, ridiculing you, uh, making fun of you, marching around our city. What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're going to accomplish? And then you can't even talk to each other. Because you know what? If they start talking to each other, they start talking like this. You know, I just don't like this plan. I've I, I got great doubts this plan's going to work. Who ever heard of such a plan as this? Walking around a city. We don't, even, we don't have bows and arrows. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know... Uh, uh, swords and spears. All we got is these trumpets in our hands. 
And, and we don't all have that. It's just a, that priests have it. That's what they'd be talking. They'd say, I knew we couldn't trust Joshua. You know, he's been good in the past, but, you know, he's getting old. <laughs> we can't trust him anymore. I think he dreamed this. Surely he didn't come up with such a plan like this from God. That's exactly what they'd be saying. So they don't say a word. They go around that city on the seventh day six times, and nothing has changed. They go around the seventh time. The priests blow the trumpets. They give a shout, and just like the Lord said, the walls of the city fell inward and fell flat, and victory belonged to the Lord's people. Just like the Lord told Joshua. See, I've given thee the city, the king of the men of valor. Now, to me, that took somebody that was putting all his trust in the Lord. He was trusting the Lord with all of his heart. If God gave the plan, it seems like an odd plan, unusual plan. Uh, you know, I don't know how this plan is going to work on the fact God said it would work. And he says, this is what's going to happen. Those walls are going to fall flat. I think of another very unusual plan. We find over here in the book of Judges, in chapter 6 over here, we find where the Bible says, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. You'll find that expression used numerous times in the book of Judges. And the people did evil again. People did evil again. And the Lord allowed them to go into the oppression of the Midianites for seven years. Then after seven years, the Lord sends an angel to a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon is threshing wheat by the wine press under an oak tree. He did this on a pretty regular basis. I'm sure his day started out. He just got up, ate breakfast, went out there under the oak tree, started threshing wheat with a wine press, and all of a sudden he's got a messenger, uh, he's got a visitor from heaven, an angel that tells him that God is going to use him to bring Israel out from under oppression and out of bondage to the Midianites. You know, he, he doesn't feel worthy, he doesn't feel qualified, he expressed himself in that manner and way. Nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the kind of people God uses. God doesn't use the proud, God doesn't use the arrogant. He doesn't use those who, uh, you know, think much of themselves like that Pharisee I mentioned earlier in Luke chapter 18. And so Gideon, uh, I can relate to him. He, he's asked the Lord for a little bit of evidence, and the Lord displays his power in one situation. And then Gideon says, well, he, he says, Lord, he says, I want to put this fleece out here on the ground. And, and tonight, or in the morning, I, I want uh, you just have dew fall on the fleece and, and nowhere else around the fleece on the ground. The Lord said, okay. So the next morning he gets up, and sure enough, the ground is dry, but that fleece is wet, and you just wring the water out of the fleece where dew fell only on that fleece. So Gideon says, well, can we try this again and reverse it? I'll put the fleece back out there again. And this time, let dew be all around the fleece and let the fleece be dry. The Lord said, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like Gideon. I can relate to Gideon. <laughs> And so sure enough, the next morning, the fleece is dry. There's new all around the fleece. Well, Gideon now is about ready to go. And uh, he's got 32,000 men. And then the Lord tells him in the next chapter, he says, now there's just too many men. And I'm, I'm sure Gideon probably thought, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us everything everybody thinks and says, but I'm human enough. I know what he was thinking. I know he's thinking. It's just too many men. I mean, how can it be too many men? Who ever heard of having an army with too many people in it? The Lord says it is. And the reason is this, because when I deliver you, they'll just say, we did it. They'll just brag on themselves. So you just ask all of them that's afraid to go home. And 22,000 turned around. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, they didn't have a hesitation. They just went on back home. <laughs> that left 10,000. 
And the Lord said, well, there's still too many. <laughs> I'm sure Kitty now is probably thinking, Lord, surely I'm not getting this correct. Too many. I want you to take them down to the water and let them lap water. Or let them drink water. And those who lap water like a dog, you kind of set them aside. Call them out over here to the right-hand side. And that's the ones I'm going to go with. When we done that, there was 300 men that did that. 9,700 did not. He sent them all back home. He's knocked that army down over 99%. An army of 32,000 is reduced now to 300 men. And Gideon takes these 300 men, and Gideon takes these 300, he puts them around the camp, divides them into three companies, 100 each. And then it says, the Bible says, every man stood round about the camp in his own place. I think that's one of the most important statements in the Bible. Every man had a place. Every man was in his place. Now I believe in the house of the Lord Jesus Christ, Every man, every woman, every child, regardless of age, has a place in the house of God. But we need to stay in our place, right? Preachers stay in his place. Deacons stay in their place. Members stay in their place. Everybody's got a place, and you got something to do, but just stay in your place. There'll be no confusion. So every man's in his place round about the camp, and Gideon says, Now, uh, when I blow the trumpet, and that's all they got now, a trumpet in one hand and an empty vessel with a, you know, uh, a lamp in the, in the picture in the left hand, no sword, no bows and arrows, no shield, no uh, conventional type of weapon, cheerful warfare. That's all they got. 300 men. He says, I blow the trumpet. You break the picture, let the light shine. And you cry out the sword of the Lord in Gideon. And they had no swords. Gideon didn't have a sword. The Lord was their sword. I'd say that's a highly unusual, unique plan, but when Gideon put the plan in place, there's no hesitation. I think Gideon is an example here, somebody who trusted the Lord with all his heart. You've got to, to carry, go into battle with a plan like that. Your army just went from 32,000, 300 men did what with the Lord, did what 32,000 men without the Lord could not do. But I want to go to a little lady in the book of Ruth tonight. Uh, in Luke, uh, Luke oh, excuse me, in Ruth chapter 2. In Ruth chapter 2, now, you know, Ruth was a Moabite woman. Uh, we find where she had married uh, a Jewish man, you know, Naam and her husband. They go down, they live in the land of Bethlehem, Judah. They go into Moab. Bethlehem, Judah means house of bread. The land of Moab just means something that's scarce, something that's barren, unfruitful, etc., etc., and uh, she's a Gentile. And then their, all their husbands die. Naomi's husband dies. Ruth's husband dies. Orpha's uh, husband dies. And then Naomi hears how the Lord has fished his people and given them bread. And she's going to go back to Bethlehem, Judah. And Ruth and Orpha, they want to follow her. But she tries actually to discourage them. But Ruth will not be denied, and she makes that famous statement in Ruth 1.16 that's been used over and over again throughout the ages, especially at weddings. It says, Entreat me not to leave thee, nor from following after thee. For where thou goest, I want to go. Where thou lodgest, I'll lodge. Your God shall be my God. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I'll die. And there, I'll be buried. Now, I don't know how you can have a greater statement of commitment than that one. Why would she make such a statement? She's not heard the teachings of the living God of Israel other than perhaps through Naomi. 
And I believe, no doubt, they had many conversations. She must have taught, taught her many things which would have done no good whatsoever had not God already taught her in her heart to know him. Here is a statement of faith. Here's going to be an action of faith, a walk of faith. And so Naomi gives in, and Ruth goes with her back to the land of Bethlehem, Judah. In chapter 2, verse 1, we're told there's a man by the name of Boaz who's a wealthy man. And a, a, a strong man, a mighty man, a wealthy man, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ruth says to Naomi, she says, Suffer me this day to go into the field, to glean in a field of one who I might find grace in his sight. Remember that expression. I might find grace in his sight. She knows something about grace. Now she can make no demands. She's the lowest rung on the social ladder. She's a Gentile woman. She's a widow woman. She's a poor widow woman. She is a, a stranger from a foreign land. She has no right. She has no, uh, uh, no ability to make any kind of demands. But the Bible says she happed to start gleaning a field that belonged to Boaz. That word happened, you look in the center reference, it means happened. It's a statement of providence, not accidental. A lot of people see things accidental. We see providential, a lot of difference in an accident and an act of providence, Right? So she happened to be in the field of Boaz, who is a near kinsman to Elimelech. Now in that day, you didn't pass by and see a farm or a ranch or something like that, and there'd be a name on the outside, you know, on a sign. You know, you ride down the road, and you see a ranch, and there's the name of the ranch or whatever. That wasn't the way it was. They had boundaries, they had landmarks, but no names. She didn't know whose field she was in, but the Lord knew whose field she was in because the Lord directed her to that field. And Boaz comes on the scene, talks to the foreman, so to speak. He sees Ruth over there. He said, who is she? And he said, well, she's the one who came to the land of Moab with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he then speaks to her. Now notice who speaks to who first. Boaz speaks to Ruth. Ruth does not speak to Boaz. It's Boaz who speaks to Ruth. He takes the initiative. That's what Christ does. Christ always takes the initiative. Christ always takes the first step. Somebody says, all you got to do is take the first step and, and the Lord will help you take the rest. Listen to me. A person dead in sin can't take any steps. That's the problem when people say that. They're trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to appeal to a dead alien sinner. Somebody doesn't have life to take a step. Well, a dead person can't step anywhere. Can't take any kind of step. The Lord is the one who draws you, as we read in John 6, 44. No man can come except the Father which sent me, draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. So Boaz speaks to her, and here's what he tells her. I want you to see some expressions of grace here in his statements. He says, do not glean in another field, just glean in this one. All fields are not the same. Don't glean in another field, you just glean in this one. And you stand fast by my maidens, and the field they cast their eyes on, you follow them into that field. And when you're thirsty, you drink some water out of the vessels that the young men have drawn for that purpose. She has safety. She has provisions. And he says, when you're hungry, there'll be food here for you. He supplies with something to eat, something to drink. He gives his blessings upon her to glean in this particular uh, plot, in this particular field. It belongs to him. He is her near kinsman. After all of this, she replies to him and she says, Why have I found favor in thy sight, seeing I'm a stranger? She realized she had no rights whatsoever, but yet she's the object of this man's affection. She says, You showed me favor. 
You have talked to me as somebody, again, who's a stranger in this land. And then we find Moab speaking like this to her. He said, may the God of Israel, may he reward you with a full reward under whose wings the ark come to trust. Ruth came to trust under the wings of God. That, that expression, God's wings, is used numerous times in the Bible. Psalm 17, 8, David says, Keep me as the apple of thine eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. Psalms 36 and verse 6, he says, Due to the loving kindness of God toward me, and they put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. That's the picture for you to get here as a mother hen would spread her wings or an eagle or whatever and the small ones come under those wings for protection, for a covering and for protection. That's what God does to us. God's got wings that we need to come under. In Psalms 91 verse 2, David says, The Lord is my fortress um, and my refuge. Therefore I put my trust in him. since he shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. So where's our trust? Under the wings of God today? I hope it is. Trust the Lord with all thine heart. She came to put her trust under the wings of the sovereign God of Israel. Then she says to the boys, if I have found favor in thy sight. Notice she never makes a demand. It's always if. It's always if. An acknowledgement of Boaz's blessings. I believe uh, without going into greater detail tonight due to the time. I believe we have a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in Boaz who is willing to share the blessings that he was able to share with a little woman from the land of Moab that will one day be in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ found in Matthew chapter 1. She is a poor widow woman, a stranger, an alien from a foreign land, yet she has found acceptance over here in the land of Canaan, the land of Bethlehem, Judah, in the field of a man by the name of Boaz, who is her near kinsman or near kinsman of Naomi. Now, she gathered enough that day for two women to have to eat for the entire week. That's how rich the land was, how rich the field was. And she says, uh, uh, ask Boaz for his favor. He says, you come, uh, at the time to eat, you come and you sit at my table. And he reaches her parched corn and takes it and dips it in the morsel of, uh, there uh, in the sop or whatever and gives it unto her. She's eating at the table of Boaz. What a change has taken place. What an unexpected day this has turned out to be. She just went out hoping to find a field she could glean in and a field that somebody would have favor toward her and she winds up in the field of Boaz. But Boaz acknowledged, says, it's been told me what you've been doing to your mother-in-law since your husband died, how you left your father and your mother in the land of your nativity and come to this land here where basically you have no standing. He said, the Lord reward thee with a full reward under whose wings are it come to trust. Over here in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10, 11, Paul says, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. He said, in whom we first trusted, and whom afterwards ye also trusted, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation preached unto you. Then we got trust used twice here. First of all, he says, whom we first trusted. I believe Paul's talking about him and the other apostles that Christ first called, like Peter and James and John. He called them to, to leave the Sea of Galilee. He called them to leave uh, their profession of fishing 
uh, to come fishes of men and to follow him. And they immediately forsook their nets and followed him. They put their trust in Christ. And then the people of Ephesus put their trust in Christ when they heard the gospel of their salvation. Now, why wouldn't you want to put your trust in a God that foreknew you and chose you and elected you and predestinated you and gave you to his son in a covenant relationship for time ever begin? who sent his son to die for you because he loved you so much. He gave his only begotten son. So his son leaves heaven's pure world, comes into this world, lives for 33 and a half years, does for you what you couldn't do for yourself, crossed all your T's, dotted all your I's, accomplished again for you, lived the life you couldn't live. Why wouldn't you put a trust in a God like that? I have to ask myself that question when I realize, hey, I'm not trusting in the Lord like I need to be trusting in the Lord. Uh, I'm trying to sell a house right now, and believe me, I'm trying to put my trust in the Lord to send me somebody. I just need one person, Lord, and you know who he is. <laughs> send him my way quick as possible. <laughs> but the Lord said, no. She, you know, I mean, Karen says, no, you know, uh, a, a good wife is, is, is a great value. She says, he's teaching us patience. Okay, all right, all right. You know, sometimes the preacher's wife preaches to the preacher. <laughs> that's, that's the penalty for training her so good. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so they first trusted in Christ when they heard the gospel of their salvation, the word of truth, which turned out to be the first fruits. And what we find Ruth has gleaned here in this field is just the first fruits of many things greater than that was going to come into her life because she put her heart, she trusted in her heart, with all of her heart, I believe, in the true and living God, and what blessings came her way. She one day become the wife of Boaz, the great-great-grandmother of David. What a lineage she has because she put her trust in the wings of the Heavenly Father. Thank you very much.